Probably that process of um, grieving that breaks the, the, this little heart that encloses itself in itself uh, open towards the heart that we all share and hmm. that one heart that we all have in common. And so in that sense it's positive. But I, I thought I understood Frank's question to refer particularly to physical pain or that nurse's question to physical pain. And there comes this difficult problem. Uh, when, is diffi uh, when is pain still life-affirming? Because there's a lot of pain that's, that's life-affirming. First of all, it's a, uh, a signal that, that there's something wrong. Or even before that, it's, it's enjoyable. Uh, there's certain pain that we, we like in sports or, or in, in other contexts. We like it's part of the game, so to say. But uh, when is it no longer life-affirming? When is it really debilitating to such an extent that this person is not as alive as he or she could be? That I think there is such a point. Mm -hmm. and, and what do you do then? And then if you uh, try to relieve the pain, often uh, you, the person is sort of half asleep and is, is again not really there. Um. I want to, um, I'm thinking about this subject of compassion, where it has come up a couple of times in the course of this discussion tonight. And I'm thinking about the very beautiful images that we have from both traditions of compassion. We have the, the compassionate smile of Buddha. We have the sacred heart of Jesus, the, the Jesus, the good shepherd, who brings the children to him and says, forgive them, they, they know not what they do. Could we speak a bit about this, this quality of compassion? How can we use it to greet suffering in the world, the suffering in our lives? And is there a difference in the way the traditions uh, approach this, this, this idea of compassion? Uh, maybe that point of is there a difference, I, I, I would like to pick that up and, and ask uh, Jack about that. Uh, in the Christian tradition, there is a great emphasis on us receiving love, receiving God's love, by grace we are saved and, and it's our God's gift and so forth. And then we are compassionate uh, in response, or it is so to say God's love that flows through us, or something of that sort. Uh, in Buddhist, uh, when I hear Buddhists speak, it often sounds that all the em as if all the emphasis were on um, the compassion that we give and not so much on the, the compassion that we receive. Mm. But I think that in, since at their best both traditions speak out of our human experience as it concretely is and interpret it, uh, and then since the experience is the same in both cases, uh, there must be some way of squaring the interpretations. Um, a couple of things. In Buddhist tradition, the, there are different levels of speaking of compassion. One is a kind of cultivation, and there are exercises of bringing to mind the suffering of others and letting that into one's heart and feeling it as if you were that person so that you touch that greater or universal connection and, and then uh, through that cultivating a spirit of caring or compassion. But on a more fundamental level what is taught and believed is that compassion, loving kindness and understanding are in fact our true nature, they are our true state. And that may be close to what the Christian tradition means of receiving grace, in that as we let go of a limited identity of I want this and I'm supposed to be that and the world should be this for me, and that desire body and that attachment 
field kind of settles, then naturally we feel a connectedness and we feel in that the suffering, the ocean of tears and the ocean of joy and that is, we swim in it, we are that. Um, And you could call that grace, if you will, in the sense that it's not something that we make as some individual, but that we are allowed to experience when, we, when we're silent, when we stop interfering. So that experience of it being uh, something that we receive, that we, uh, compassion that we receive, uh, that uh, would surely be basically human and, and, and would be common to all of us. Uh, because if you just think how many generations of, pe- of, of just of ancestors had to be compassionate so that you would be around to, today. That, that would be one small little bit of this whole puzzle. But uh, in, the, uh, the, in the biblical context, this is then projected sort of on a, on a wider canvas and, and uh, the very word for uh, the, the compassion of God is uh, God's motherliness is really the, the best hmm. way to express it. Even in the Bible where we always say, well, this is so, so uh, male-oriented and, and so forth. And there's some truth to that. But that word uh, in, in Hebrew is the, uh, is the abstract noun from, for the word womb. It's God's wombness. Uh, Rechem is the womb and the Rachamim is, is God's compassion in that word. And the Buddha uses in the this the obviously central same image in talking about loving kindness and compassion. He says just as the mother a mother will hold her beloved child, so too our hearts can embrace the whole of the earth and hold it as if we were somehow identifying with that universal mother. So it's very similar. There's another, there's a kind of side point to what you ask, a tangent, but a, a really important one, I think, in, in spiritual practice and, and what you say about receiving or giving. That is in spiritual life, and I think in hospice work and so forth as well, there tends to be this emphasis on giving. Um, what can I give? How can I serve? Um, And I see it in meditation that people can be loving to lots of other people, but when it comes to themselves, forget it. I mean, we are so hard on ourselves, or so judgmental, or so closed in ways. And so in a meditative way, one of the big pieces of being able to love, or touch, or open, or live, is is really the work of of forgiveness and grace receiving yourself in all of your complexity and loving. In the hospice work I think it's the same. A friend of mine asked how might I work with a, a person who's dying? She was just starting hospice work. She said, um, I feel like I really don't have anything to give this person. I'm interested, I want to learn about death or something, but I feel like I have nothing to give. And I said, why don't you go to that person and tell them that you may not have anything to give, but you're interested in dying and you'd like the privilege of being around them to see what you could learn, rather than to give, to learn. And so she did. She went to this person in her hospital room and said, you know, I've joined hospice and I don't really know much about grieving or helping people who are dying, but I really want to learn. Is it okay? And the woman in the hospital was so relieved. You know, um, you mean you're not coming to help me? Thank God. You know, I've had enough of that already. Where can I get some more information? If you will, there's some lists outside. If you want to sign up um, on a list out there for meditation retreats, we'll get you some information about where you can learn more about Buddhist, Buddhist practice. And also, just to say that the, there's a Vipassana meditation retreat coming up the weekend of July 15th and 17th. 
taught by Sylvia Borstein and Alma Douglas. Um, and if you, there are some flyers outside on the table if you want to get some information about that. Um, we, we were talking here about sharing just a little bit about the Zen Center Hospice Program to give this a little bit, give you more of a feel for what this is about. And I'll try and be brief and we'll talk a little bit about that. Just to say that Zen Center started its program back in uh, just this past October, September, October. So it's relatively new. But the group of people that we choose to work with are predominantly medically indigent and poor. And they come to us, for the most part, through San Francisco General Hospital. And what we do is go out, uh, generally meet them in the hospital, and then we care for them, usually providing practical and emotional support for them in their homes or their Tenderloin hotels or wherever, they, wherever it is that they live. In some cases, we've um, taken people to Zen Center to, who come and live and die with us there. And to give you a sense of what we do with the program, I thought I would just tell you a little bit about some of the people we care for. One is a woman from Belize who finds a mixture between her mother's uh, herbal brews and chemotherapy. Another was a woman, Diana, who um, had no one in her life and lived in a Tenderloin hotel for the last 15 years. Uh, the day she died a few months ago, it was our volunteer that was with her. Um, Stella is a woman who came to live with us at Zen Center, who was about 61 years old. She lived all alone in um, a place on Mission Street. She was in the hospital when I met her. We had been working with her for a couple of months. And um, she said that she had enough, and she was quite depressed about her condition. And the psychiatrist said to me, or said to our volunteer, why do you think she wants to die? She talked about dying a lot. And they determined that her depression was such that she wasn't really capable of making her own care decisions and had thought about putting her on life support systems. And so we simply said, look, you can come and live with us. And so we brought her to Zen Center. We weren't quite sure how we were going to take care of her, but we did. And during that time, we basically just set up an atmosphere of kindness for her. And we provided 24-hour care. Um, and it, in that care, kindness and care, Stella blossomed, as did most of us. Stella was a woman who had had a lot of broken promises. She was abandoned at age six. She lost her daughter to a murder while her daughter was pregnant. She had, uh, her son had been taken away from her. She hadn't, hadn't seen her brother and sister in 20 years. During the time she was at Zen Center, we helped to facilitate a reconciliation between her brother and sister. Um, and I was with Stella um, during a period of time when her brother was pouring out an enormous amount of regret about the sadness of, not, of the missed opportunities. And uh, there was a great deal of pain for him. And it was this simple. Stella turned to him, she said, you know, she said, I really have everything I need. There's someone here who gives me a bath. She's here. Someone who feeds me. My brother's here now. And I'm really surrounded by love. There's really nothing more I need. And there's no blame. Her brother uh, came out and joined us at a memorial service uh, shortly after Stella's death the next, the next day. And there gathered at Green Gulch Farm were all the people, 30 or more people, who had cared for his sister and some of which he'd come to know. Rusty was a tough, alcoholic cowboy. He was wondering when he first came to Zen Center what kind of a strange place this was <laughs> and how we'd gotten hold of his sister anyhow. So we, uh, we came out to Green Gulch for this service and he stopped on the way and bought three dozen roses for the friends. And uh, he said, you know, he said, I just understood something. He said, you people didn't have to do this. You did this because you wanted to. See, folks don't do that. And uh, he turned to me, he said, Frank, he said, I love you. He said, hell of a thing to say to another man. <laughs> he said, but things are happening to me with you people I just don't understand. <laughs> At the end of the service, he took, each, he took a rose. Now remember, this is a tough cowboy. And he took a rose and he handed it to each one of the volunteers. And he said, some of these roses are for love. And some of them are for friendship. Some of them, well, they're just roses. <laughs> the, 
So maybe we did have a kind of a Zen influence on him, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I want to say that the work is very ordinary work. It's terribly mundane sometimes. Um, I can't, and I invite you to join us in it. And I can't prom I won't promise you peak experiences and that you'll see the tunnel at the end, of the light at the end of the tunnel. Or, you know, we don't give away free tickets to Stephen Levine retreats or <laughs> anything like that. But uh, what we do promise is that it will cause you to take a look at yourself. And in this project, and maybe what makes this one different than some other hospice projects, is that we recognize that this is work on ourselves. And in the process, we may also help someone who's dying. If that's something you think you might like to participate in, there's some information on your, sheet, on your chairs about the program and tell you how to get a hold of me. Please do. There's also a sign-up sheet for people who might like to volunteer. We're going to be doing a training in September for the next group. We've only trained one group of volunteers, understand. So it's very, right now, it's still a very intimate group, very fresh and very exciting to be around. So I really encourage you to join us uh, if you have an all an inkling to step into the mundane and ordinariness of life. We've been thinking about calling it the Nothing Special Project. Uh, if you can volunteer with us, that would be wonderful. Um, there are other ways that you can help as well. One of those is that by coming here tonight, you helped us to raise the money that we need to care for our patients, to uh, provide attendant care, to feed them when we do that, to train our volunteers and such. There are some of you here tonight who can afford to give a little bit more. And if that's so, please reflect a bit on the nature of this work and what we're trying to do and how Simply, we are trying to do it. And I promise you, we will use your contributions quite mindfully. Uh, in your seats, there are some pledge cards. And if you'd like to make a pledge and don't have the money with you tonight, simply fill it out and drop it in a basket on the way out. If you can afford something tonight, if it's $5 or $10, lovely. And there's some of you that can afford a great deal more than that. And if uh, this program this evening and the work that we do touches your heart, um, it would be lovely if you could uh, share that wealth with us. I want to say, uh, close with, um, what, let me just say, just practically speaking, there'll be people at the doors that will take your checks or your pledges on the way out, and uh, we'd hope that you could help us with that. It cost us about $2,000 to put on this event tonight to rent the hall and the sound system and such, and we'd like to be able to raise the money here this evening to pay for that. So that the money that came from your tickets can all go directly to patients, to our work with patients. Um, I want to say one more thing about this work, and I, I want to close with a, um, a quote from Tagore. He said something like, I slept and I dreamt that life was joy. I woke and I found that Life was service. I acted, and behold, service was joy. Hmm. That's kind of what guides us in this program. And again, if you would like to join us in it, please uh, see me here tonight or give us a call. And again, if you can uh, find your way to uh, making a contribution, please do. Now, what we're going to do is continue with uh, more dialogue with Jack and Brother David. And what we'd like to do is have you ask the questions now. And we'll have two microphones in the audience. And so we'll get the microphones to you. And all you need to do is do the standard thing that you learned in first grade, which is raise your hand. OK. I don't know. They're taking questions. Give her the mic, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I have a question. Uh, my mother died about mm, uh, almost a year ago. And my process of looking at my relationship with her over the last year has been really um, a painful one for me in that there isn't a lot of good feelings um, th that I have. I, I feel like that um, I'm uncovering more what the truth of our relationship was and that she was actually, um, to be kind, not a very nice person. And. Um, so I'm not left with a lot of uh, benevolent feelings that I thought that I think she had either for me nor I for her. 
I do feel um, that I saw, can see her suffering now, her, her life suffering. And I feel for her, and one of the little phrases that comes up for me is, when I think of her is, my poor little mother. Hmm. And, um, but I, I'm very busy unplugging um, a lot of uh, negative voices that I hear in my head that are really her voice, and I'm trying to, in that way, let her die so that she's not talking to me in this very negative way. Um, I'm hoping that someday there'll be some more benevolent feelings, or that I can feel possibly her benevolence for me now that she's passed on. Um, I don't think she's as limited now as she was when she was here. So. I don't, I, it's a quandary for me, and I, I don't know when, or if ever, I'll feel better about her and who she was, and that, and I wonder if either of you, both of you, can say something about that. Not very much. You, you said it, in a way, quite well, um, describing your experience. Uh, A lot of times, um, and I see it as a, working as a psychologist and as a therapist, it really doesn't matter whether one's parents or whoever some significant person is, is alive or not. There's some work to be done and things to be completed and difficulties or sorrows to recognize and to come to terms with. Um, and in terms of that internal work, it sounds like for you, the fact that your mother died is not so important. You're in the middle of this process and she left her body, but you're still in the middle of that process. The only other thing I could say, besides that that's so, and it, it's kind of normal, is um, to tell you that if you follow that thread, if you trust that process and really uncover and feel and open, that there is something else at, at the end of that process, when, whenever it's time. It seems to me that you have already a very solid and good basis for you know, whatever work you need to do, because you, the way you express it, you face it and you, you are honest with yourself and with the situation. That's always a, a very healthy basis. Um, but I also feel that our lives uh, are so intertwined with one another, uh, all of us, but particularly I would say, of course, uh, um, a parent and, and, and the offspring, we are so intertwined. Uh, Auden says somewhere there comes a point in our lives where we cease, this is just an observation that you can even make from photographs, there comes a point in our lives when we cease to look more and more like ourselves and, and start looking more and more like our family, this <laughs> family resemblance. And so we live in one another. You see photographs of your grandfather as a child and it looks exactly like you as a child and so forth. So, uh, that is just an external hint towards the fact that your mother lives in you. you. You are living also part of your mother's life still, and therefore you can change it. And everything that you didn't like about it uh, is uh, your chance and her chance in and through you to correct it. And I think once we catch on to that, uh, and that's not just wishful thinking or some something that's not real and so, but that's very real from my experience, and it can become very real to anybody's experience, I'm sure, who opens themselves to it. That uh, we know it with friends how intimately one lives the other's lives, uh, life and does things that the other. So we can live another person's life and can complete very consciously. This is an area that uh, my mother did not uh, fulfill, and I will fulfill it now. Something like that, and that makes you better, and it it and it changes things. The the past is not unchangeable. That is just a, a wrong notion that the past is. In a sense, it is over with, but, in, but, the, but there is so much of the past still in the present that it is very malleable and we, we can do a lot with it. Brother David, 
Can you speak? I hear a voice, but I don't hear where it comes from. I don't see where it comes from. I just want you to speak to what it is that Christianity has in common with Buddhism and vice versa. Oh my. <laughs> in brief. Well, uh, that is a, a, a very big topic and we can't hope to uh, we couldn't hope to exhaust this by any answer that we would give in one whole evening and so. But uh, <clears throat> I can, from my own experience, point to some uh, commonalities. And one is that both of them, at their best, you either compare both of them at their best or both of them at their worst. That is a very <laughs> important rule of the game. <laughs> Both of them, at their best, start with the human condition, very concretely with the human condition, and, uh, and are quite psychological. See? Now, in, uh, since we have uh, so, so many excellent uh, representatives of Buddhism right now in this country who are very articulate and so forth, and it is also new to us, uh, we hear that better uh, in listening to Buddhists and uh, also most of our Sunday school teaching has not prepared us too well to hear that in the in the Gospels or in the, in the Christian teaching but I can assure you it is there and it's one of the very important things to be rediscovered um, and I say rediscovered because often it is hidden for instance most uh, people have the impression that uh, most Christians, unfortunately, also, uh, uh, that Jesus uh, insists somewhere on this divine authority that stands behind him, and he sort of comes and says, I tell you what to do. I'm coming from God the Father, and I will tell you what to do. And so uh, that's just not so. And you, you look at the Gospels, and you find very clearly that this is not so. And so you begin to ask yourself, the question, where does Jesus, uh, to what authority does Jesus appeal? It's a very important question. Now, the Buddha appeals to the uh, authority of uh, the, his hearer's sense. He, he just says, well, don't, have you not experienced this? And then he builds on this experience. We all know that, don't we? See? Uh, and you somehow have the impression, well, this is so different and Jesus doesn't do it, then you read and you, you read unbiased, unbiased by the, by the things that you've been told. And you find that there is, that the most typical way in which Jesus teaches is to ask his, in parables, that we all know that, that's established, that's his most typical way of teaching. And the typical parable of Jesus begins with the question, uh, who of you, that's very frequently the, the beginning of a parable, often expressed, always implicit, who of you doesn't know this and this and this and this? For instance, who of you who is a shepherd doesn't know what you do with your sheep or how sheep behave? And who of you who is a, a parent doesn't know how parents feel towards their children? Who of you has ever baked bread? And who of you has ever planted anything? So it's always appealing to very basic uh, experiences of his hearers. That's step one. Step two is that his hearers say, well, everybody knows that. That's common sense. The common sense on, this, in a very, on a very deep level. And then the third step is that often expressed and, and more often unexpressed just by looking at them, I guess, and by raising an eyebrow or something like that, Jesus says, well, if you know it so well, why don't you act that way? See? And so you can say that the authority, this is, this is solidly established, that the authority to which Jesus appeals is, yes, in, in the biblical context, you would call it the divine spirit, 
the Holy Spirit, God's own knowledge, in the hearts of his hearers. That is the important thing. Out there, not behind me, up there, or in me, but out there, in your hearts. And then drives a wedge between this common sense, as I call it, uh, in the, uh, but you have to write this with capital C and, uh, and S. This is, this is the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the hearers, the really common sense, that which we all have in common and which alone makes sense, or by which alone we can make sense. To that Jesus appeals and he drives a wedge between that common sense and public opinion. And, and conventionality to which we always are e eager to bow and bend because that, that uh, we think makes life so easy, you see. And therefore, his hearers say, he speaks with authority. Uh, just as the hearers of Buddha said, that man speaks with authority. Who speaks with authority? Somebody who ap uh, uh, appeals to the ultimate authority and that is uh, the common sense, or we would say in the Christian context, the divine uh, spirit in your own heart. And that is so basic and so important for, for the two traditions to have that in common that anything else that you would focus on would just sort of detract from it, or distract your attention from it. But if you start with that most central thing, uh, then everything else flows from there. That, that would be a starting point, at least, that I could suggest to you. May I, may I add to your answer a bit? First, as a way of supporting it, something I've enjoyed reading in, recently in other places, a quote from Pope John XXIII. He says, It often happens that I wake at night and begin to think about a serious problem and decide I must tell the Pope about it. <laughs> And then I wake up completely and remember that I am the Pope. <laughs> and there's something really universal in that of awakening to what we already are. Um, there's one other image, and, and I think in, in, in answering that kind of question, you're asking two people who both by experience and perhaps by our temperament, our nature, tend to see the commonality underlying more than the differences. But I, I was at one time in, in my travels in Asia uh, visiting a temple in Vietnam during the war. Um, and there was a lot of fighting going around on in, in this area in the Mekong Delta. And this temple was the temple of a coconut monk who was the name of the teacher who lived on coconuts and a little island in the middle of the one of the delta rivers um, and we took a boat from Ban Mito I think it was and when we arrived we were met by brothers in kind of brown robes that looked a little bit like Christian robes but also had some Buddhist quality and as you walked in up this island of five acres there was a little hill and when you got to the crest of the hill there were two statues there was about a 40 or 50 foot tall statue of the Buddha standing there smiling with that smile of the Buddha and right next to him was a 40 or 50 foot tall statue of Jesus and they had their arms around each other's shoulders and they were smiling and in some way also to look at it in terms of the, the myth or the metaphor of their lives. Um, both Jesus and Buddha in their teaching and in their lives address this basic question of suffering. Jesus on the cross and pain in, in some fashion and the Buddha in the Four Noble Truths in the first basic teaching. And when you look at the Buddha and you see this smile or you look at many of the images of Jesus, the, the myth, um, you see a kind of divine love or radiance that says, yes, there is birth and death, and yes, there is sorrow and loss, and that is a part of life as much as there is the, the springtime. Um, and there is some truth, there is some place in the heart or in the, the center of our being that transcends that. And we know this, and you too may know this in some way, and that 
to me is what brings them together. That is probably the most convincing, that people, for instance, you have two representatives of the two traditions who, by, uh, by the, of whom each tradition says they are really sort of saintly people in our tradition, and they recognize the traditions in one another. For instance, you have in the Christian tradition Thomas Merton, uh, and you have in the Buddhist tradition Thich Nhat Hanh, and they meet one another and they understand one another so well that Merton will say, oh, Thich Nhat Hanh is really a, a Christ-like figure. And uh, Thich Nhat Hanh will say, oh, in Merton I have met a Bodhisattva. So <laughs> <laughs> on that level, you see, is, is the most convincing. Uh, uh. I'd like to return to the question of dealing with the physical pain. I'd ask your coaching in helping me respond to this. I'm a hospice physician and am called upon to treat people who experience pain. And the pain is quite complex. It is the pain of a heart that's been closed and is struggling to open. It's the pain of the psychological fears that all of us accumulate as we live. And it's the physical pain of uh, prostaglandins released in bone metastases. And there's a, a struggle in my own sense of how best to address this in the most skillful fashion. Uh, and I'd just like to get your input. There was a very uh, uh, strongly ascetic old master from Burma that I spent some time with studying. And his own practice had been a, a kind of... Um, severe one. He took the most ascetic disciplines, for example. He took the one of the allowable practices was not to lie down to sleep. So for the past 40 years he had never lay down. He sleeps sitting up and some other things like that. And he was training a group of us, a number of Westerners. And some people came to him in their meditation practice and were experiencing a lot of pain. It wasn't just the pain of settling in or something, but it was, it was very, very painful. And he asked, well, should I sit with it? Should I stay with that pain? And this wasn't even as deep or profound in a way as the pain that you describe. And I expected he would say, yes, you know, just like a samurai, a warrior, you just sit with it. And he looked at them in the most compassion and he said, sit with it when you are able. And then when you're not, move and find some other way to sit and work with that and work with all of those states. And there was, even from him as a great ascetic, there was this real understanding of balance. It wasn't a formula or it wasn't a thing. And my sense, even from the sensitivity of your question of hearing those levels, is that your work with those people is is like an art and it's not something cut and dried and um, it's your listening and maybe you're asking can you do this is this working for you is it not um, and I just would say to trust your heart and trust your intuition and relieve pain when you can really to do that and when you can't and to hold the hand and touch the heart and do whatever else your your own spiritual wisdom allows you to do. In the Bible, the classical uh, uh, place for this suffering is, is the book of Job, and uh, and Job is is uh, this fictional figure on which uh, all the su possible sufferings are heaped, so that uh, the author can then deal with uh, with this problem of suffering. And his friends come to visit him. And we all remember those long, long speeches that those friends make. And in the end, it's uh, of no help whatsoever. But before that, it says that for, I think, eight days, they sat in silence. He sits there on this dung heap, and this is all full of leprosy and so forth. And the friends come, and they sit with him for eight days in silence. And I think that is the best part of the whole book. What they say afterwards is not so convincing. But <laughs> <laughs> if we can get ourselves to sit with those who suffer for eight days in silence, then uh, that is already 
enormously much, it seems to me. And actually, medically, it has been shown that just the presence of another human being uh, can help very much uh, to relieve pain. Uh, just, to, just if somebody else is present, that helps. Uh, I know we, we all want to do more. Uh, I, I think out of the silence that more has a better chance to come forth um, rather than rushing in. But I also think that just the silence, just being present, holding them, being there for them, available, and so forth, uh, that could be a tremendous thing. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, I've been dealing with the death issue for about 14 months now, being diagnosed as having AIDS. I've talked to many people about it, and I keep hearing, as both of you have said earlier today, that one of the things you have to do is forgive yourself. Forgive yourself for what? For living or for dying? I've, too many people that I've talked to have, have said, well, you know, you, you have to forgive yourself. If, if living, if you're born to live, you're also born to die. You can't change either one of them. So if you do both of them the best that you can, what, do you, what are you supposed to forgive yourself for? If you do both of them the best you can, you don't have anything that you need forgive. But, um, and I don't know whether it speaks to you, but it speaks at least to me and some other people. In the process of facing dying or disease or um, our mortality or loss of people around as well, um, often you discover in that process places where you've held, places where the heart still won't let go or won't accept or is grudging or somehow carrying the past. Um, and if that's so, if those show themselves, if they're there, then the work is the work of forgiveness. Um, and that forgiveness allows you to do exactly what you said, to live well and fully and to die fully. And forgiveness is a, um, it's a really wondrous thing in a way. Uh, when Brother David answered the first question about this woman's mother uh, and talked about the possibility of facing even that which is really difficult and coming to some new relationship with it, some new creativity. Um, for many people, that's very important. That's all I could say. Uh, we often confuse two uh, attitudes towards wrong and, and the wrong that we ourselves have done, feelings and so forth. And one is forgiveness, one is uh, uh, remorse, we call it remorse. And uh, the other one we have no good name for it. Uh, but remorse is not a good thing. Uh, remorse uh, literally means biting again. Morsus is the bite and remorse is to bite again and again and again. We, we sort of uh, gnaw on, on the things that have bothered us in the past. We, most of us have done something that we wish we had done it differently. And remorse is not the right thing. The other word, the, the, the only one that's available for it, is compunction. That's a very technical word and we hardly ever use it. As it's therefore also not particularly helpful. But when we look exactly what it means, uh, it means uh, a, like a, a pricking with, a, with an ice pick or something like that. And what we prick through is uh, this, again, this narrowness of our own heart and we open it up towards life, towards life in its fullness. And the way you spoke, it seems to me that uh, you are past remorse, you, you are not, that's not one of your problems, and you have somewhere already opened your heart to this fullness of life, and therefore, and that often happens to people when they are confronted with the 
finality of death and the finiteness of their life and they have only so much more life so much 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 time left and then all of a sudden they begin to come alive and if that has happened to you then don't worry about people who tell you uh, to uh, 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 forgive yourself you have already long forgiven yourself and this attitude of forgiving, which is really uh, a little narrow when we say forgive yourself, uh, forgiveness is always the ultimate giving that we receive also. But forgiving it yourself means that you open yourself up to it. It is always coming to you. It's the ultimate giving of all of life. Uh, but there's a, a, a line... It's just the last stanza of, uh, again, Yeats. Yeats' uh, poem, A Dialogue of Self and Soul. And the last stanza is so beautiful and expresses exactly that attitude. And if I heard you correctly, you are at least groping for this kind of an attitude. And, and that's very liberating and very beautiful. Uh, so anyway, I'd, I'd like to read that stanza to you. He says, I am content to follow to its source every event in action or in thought. Measure the lot, forgive myself the lot. When such as I cast out remorse, so great a sweetness flows into the breast, we must laugh and we must sing. We are blessed by everything. Everything we look upon is blessed. There's something sad, as I started out saying about this finality, but there's something, something incredibly uh, freeing about it too, that uh, we, we can manage it. We can, this is the time given to me. I have done what I could. I will not accuse myself of, of not doing better. I did my best, and now with the time left, I will do my best. And it is a manageable thing. I have so much time to, to, uh, left. And if, if the rest of us who are not so clearly told you have that much time to live, if we could somehow live with that same attitude, uh, we would be very well off. My question is sort of, or my statement is sort of uh, tied to both the question by the, the doctor and this question. Um, I think that forgiveness has a lot to do with compassion. And um, I uh, finally admitted that I'd had a really hard life recently. And um, I uh, went through a period where I was very suicidal. And um, I think that that was almost like dying or thinking, you know, being condemned to death to think that I would kill myself. And um, what happened is I um, was working with a therapist and with a group called Al-Anon. And when I recognized the compassion in, in both my therapist and in that group, I suddenly felt it for myself. And um, I also realized what compassion was. It wasn't any sort of sense of feeling sorry for or having feeling for, but it was, had to do with forgiveness, with accepting the way I am and the way everyone else was. And um, I think, I don't know, I, it's just, I'm more commenting than I'm asking a question, but I'm also asking for comments from you on that sort of view of compassion and understanding it for ourselves. Well, the, the classical Christian uh, statement to it is from uh, Paul, a, a fairly early statement in which he sort of summarizes uh, the, the teachings of Jesus by saying, by grace we have been saved, gratis we have been put together, uh, not by anything that we have done gratis. It's our gift. And in our best moments, in our most alive moments, we experience that. That everything has been given to us gratis. And, uh, and on that basis, we feel 
uh, a joy in now showing ourselves grateful to life and to come alive. And that would be, uh, that would be the attitude that uh, compassion is then, you know, and that, that's this compassion. But we have first received that compassion from all, uh, from all that we know, from all of creation, and from that divine horizon behind all of creation. We, we receive that forgiveness. We are put together, and we know that in our best moments. I think this is the last question. Is that right, Franco, or were you? Um, what I have to say isn't directly on your question, but it's it's related to it. Um, and again, quite brief. There was a Hindu guru, a teacher that I studied with for some period of time. Um, and I loved him a lot, and I felt very loved because he was someone that was both very happy and he was one of the few people that I met in my life who seemed to want nothing at all from me. And there was this enormous space in being with him uh, because the, there was nothing he wanted and I felt so happy and free to be around him. Um, but one day he was teaching people and people were talking about their struggles and he said, I don't understand you. He said, you are always wanting what you don't have, and you never have what you want. He said, it's so simple, why not reverse it? Why not want what you have, and not want what you don't have? Very easy. <laughs> Last month or two ago, I went, uh, I was down in Southern California teaching in the desert um, with my family and my three-year-old daughter we were traveling and we went to a place that had several big fountains and there were pennies in it and so I was explaining to her about making wishes um, and actually we'd been going we'd gone out shopping and she got a new pair of shoes and she'd got some balloons that she had with her so she said can I make a wish daddy I gave her a few pennies to make wishes and she took her first penny and she threw it in and I was curious. I didn't tell her that you had to keep it secret, you know, you want to <laughs> So I said, did you make a wish? She said, yes. I said, what did you wish for? And she said, I wished for two balloons, which is right here, what I have. <laughs> and I said, do you want to make another wish, thinking she might make a more ordinary wish? And so she just bought a pair of beautiful new shoes and she threw the penny in. I said, did you make a wish? She said, yeah, I wished for pink shoes, which is what she had just <laughs> been given. And there was something really, I mean, it's silly in a way, but there was something really important in it, in that wishing or accepting or being with what there was rather than what one might hope or expect. So... I want to thank both of you for spending so much time with us. And uh, before we go, maybe we can have a, some short, a little bit of a short sit. I want to say also to the group of people that are here that if you'd like to have a tape of this evening's talk, they will be available. And there's an order form out front that you can sign up. Or if you make a contribution tonight at $25, we'll just give you a copy of the tape as well. So, Jack? Do you want to lead us in a short meditation? Mm -hmm. And then maybe Brother David? And Brother David is going to chant or do a prayer or something. I start with a very short chant also. Hantamayang Buddharatana Satinayanja Garoma Sehe Namo Tatsa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Samputasa. As you sit silently, and if you will, if you're comfortable, allow your eyes to close or be closed. And first, just feel the breathing within this human body you've been given the movement of the breath in and out, and the breath of your life.
and as you feel this breathing, see if you can sense the breath in the area of the heart, as if you could breathe in and out through the heart. The heart's breath. And as you breathe through the heart, feel the heart's breath. Become aware, allow yourself to feel this heart, this capacity to open, to love, to touch your life. And first, for a moment, begin with yourself. For if we can't find a loving kindness and acceptance for ourselves, it's hard to be allowing of things in others. And feeling your heart. Let yourself experience a caring or a kindness for your whole being, just as if you are a young child and you could hold yourself to hold this young girl or this young boy who need do nothing to earn your love. And let your heart open with loving kindness. and tenderness and understanding. May we learn to hold ourselves as this child, as a divine child. And all the sensations and the physical joys and pains, all of the feelings, the happinesses and the sorrows, may we receive with an open heart And then, through your sense or imagining, or your thought, feeling, let that caring expand from your heart. Let the heart grow bigger to include all of those in this room and the whole of the city around us. All of the beings, the people and animals and creatures and beyond still to the whole of the earth and all realms. And feel or imagine that you could hold the whole of the earth in your heart like a child and to wish for it, understanding, and loving kindness a compassion for its sorrows struggles and the grace or light of your understanding and love to touch every being and every form of life. May all beings 
be happy and peaceful. And may the heart of loving-kindness expand and touch every being who lives.
it seems appropriate to close with a chant and uh, there's so much that music can say that words cannot say so I also want to especially thank our friend who started and supported us this evening with the piano playing uh, and this chant is the last chant that we sing in the monastery every evening uh, the better part of the year uh, before uh, retiring and it celebrates uh, the motherliness of God under the image of the Blessed Virgin and uh, I remember once visiting a friend uh, of the monastery she wasn't so much my personal friend but a friend of the monastery in the hospital and um, she was in a coma when I came there and she had been for many days and she was tossing around and obviously in very great pain and um, I thought well maybe if she hears this melody that will help her a little bit maybe subconsciously she will hear it and I sang this chant and immediately she seemed to fall asleep and then I found out later on that, that she never woke up from the sleep. She just fell asleep and that was it. So uh, this is the chant. Salve Regina, Mater Misericordiae, Vita Dulcedo, et spes nostra salve. At te clamamus, exules filii heve, at te suspiramus, gementes et flentes, in hac lacrimarum valde. Ea ergo, Advocata nostra, illos tuos misericordes oculus, ad nos converte. Et Iesum, benedictum fructum ventris tui, nobis, Post hoc exilium ostende. O Clemens, O Pia, O Dulcis, Virgo Maria, 